Good morning. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to Romans chapter 1. I know that's a big surprise, but we are still uh, making our way through Romans, uh, chapter 1 that is, and uh, it's going to take us a little while longer to get out of it, but we're uh, this morning going to be in uh, Romans 1, looking at verses 21 through 25 uh, together. And if uh, you're not there yet, don't worry, it'll be up on the screen, but then also uh, we're going to be there all morning long, so you've got time to get there. Romans 1, starting with verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore... God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped the served creature, and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Um, one of the truths of life that we, uh, that we know is that life, we, we need certain things to live. And from a very early age, I don't know, you know when it is, but we all realize that there are just certain things that we always need. Uh, stuff like air, water, food. Uh, and maybe until like a, a year or so ago, most of us didn't realize that toilet paper was on that list too, right? Um, and, 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 and we realized that and saw that um, uh, for a while. And I, I kind of thought that we were beyond that. But uh, yesterday, Hannah came home from the store and she goes, uh, the store didn't have toilet paper, and we're down to two rolls, and so you guys can be praying for us, because I think there's dark days ahead uh, in our household. Uh, I can remember, though, in, um, early on in, in the lockdown, uh, never realizing that you know, toilet paper was so essential to life, uh, and never imagining that every time I went to Fred Meyer, the first aisle that I would walk into was the toilet paper aisle, just to see if there was any there, this thing that we needed so desperately in our life and everybody uh, was grasping up. And uh, I, I can remember one time uh, walking into uh, the aisle, it had been like a few weeks since I'd seen a roll of toilet paper everywhere. We were in this desert, you know, and the, there was this oasis of toilet paper uh, in the road. And I, and I ran over and, and I grabbed it and I was looking at it and I was like, well, this isn't what I normally get. Like, I think, I think it was like only two-ply. It wasn't even a jumbo roll, you know, sort of thing. And I'm like looking at this thing, and I start like looking around. I'm like, well, is there anything else that like maybe there's another choice here? And, and the dread hit me of having this. I'd finally found the thing I wanted, and yet I didn't have a choice for something else. I just had to take what was there. And, and, and the realization hit me that this is what it must have been like to be on the Oregon Trail. Just like no choice, uh, like you get the toilet paper you get, and that's what it's really, that's, that's what roughing it is, like, right? And so like I walked through Fred Meyer, and I was like, I've, I feel like I could have done that. I feel like I could have moved cross country and done everything because I'm roughing it now. But that, one of the things, it's not toilet paper that's a necessity of life. One of the things that is a necessity to life that we all want, we all desire is choice. Choice is essential. And when we don't have a choice, we don't have a choice, even though the thing that we need is staring us right in the face, when when we say, well, we have to either take this or do without, it feels as though we're dying to death inside, doesn't it? Choice is essential, I I think, to us because I, well, let me just say this. I'll, I'll just go where nobody wants to go. I think over the last year and a half, 
things like mandates have shown us how important choice is to us in our life. The idea that anybody would come along at any point in time and tell us anything to do with our life and say you don't have a choice about it just doesn't feel right. Because when choice is taken away from me, all of a sudden, how am I supposed to know who I am? How am I supposed to show other people who I am by the choices I made? If I just have to do it, well, where's the fun in that? Where's my personality, my uniqueness? My personhood itself is lost when choice is taken away from me. A, a lot of times uh, in the evenings uh, when uh, I have a, uh, like if I have a meeting like early next morning or something, I've told Hannah, my wife will often uh, go into mother mode and at some point just be like, you know, you really should like go to bed. <laughs> and in my mind, I don't say this out loud because I don't want to get in a fight with her, but in my mind I think, don't tell me what to do. I know what I need to do, but I have a choice. Because why? Because I'm an adult. I, I'm a grown-up. Like, I can grow in, like, 50% of my facial hair. So don't you dare tell me, like, what I should be doing. I have a choice in this matter, and I don't have to do what you tell me to do. Like, even when we know what the thing is that we need, choosing it, knowing it and choosing it are two different things, aren't they? This is what Paul's talking about in verse 21. He says, choice is such a, a vital aspect to who we are. We, we crave it. Even, even when we know the thing that we need, we know it's staring us right in the face. We look around and we say, I know I need this, and if I don't take this, I won't be able to get it anywhere else. But you know what, man? I just don't like being forced into anything. He says there in verse 21, look back there. It says, for although they knew God... They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They knew who God was. But the desire to be unique, to be different, to be able to express themselves was so great that they chose something other than God. Ed talked about this last week, this, this idea of, of knowing God and that, that God's not hidden. It seems so... Uh, obvious to us, those of us who, who know God, who, who are here this morning probably, that, oh man, like God has made himself aware and knowledgeable to everyone. And it's true that in his creation, through just his love for us, that God has revealed himself and is constantly revealing himself to all of creation. But even in that, our desire to be able to say who we are to show how different we are from one another, to show that we are something that is so valuable to each and every one of us, that we are unique. So great that even when we see God and we know that we need God, we'll say, you know what, don't tell me what to do. There's other ways that I can get what it is I need. I think when we uh, get into a, a, a discussion on a topic like this uh, where, where Paul is talking about serving idols, uh, it can be really easy for us to get kind of self-righteous as, as, we, as we look and we think about people that, uh, especially in biblical times, were drawn into idolatry. That they would, uh, that they would make these images and, and they would give them all of these different just qualities and, and say that, um, I, I mean, just as you see like the children of Israel coming out of Egypt 
and they're, they're waiting on Moses while he's up on Mount Sinai. And, and they come to Aaron and they're like, you know, we need a God. And, and so they like take all of their gold and they like smelt it together, right? And they, they make this, you know, these golden calves out of it. And, and then they fall down before the calf and they say, this is who brought us out of e- Egypt. And you're like, man, you guys are stupid, right? Like, how in the world could you believe that? Like, do you not just see how, like, all of, like, you, you built this thing. You put it together. And, and what's more is you, you know who it was that was doing this all the time because he was talking to you about it. Moses was telling you about him, that it was God. And you saw how God worked and what God did. And so it, it, it can be easy for us when we're, when we're thinking about idolatry in our lives and the world around us to just be like, how can anyone think like this? It's really easy for us to identify with Isaiah chapter 44 as, as the author of Isaiah is laying out to us what idolatry is and what it looks like and kind of just the way we think. He says there in verse, uh, chapter 44 verse 19, he says, No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, talking about wood, idols made of wood, Half of it I burned in the fire, I also baked bread on its coals, I roasted meat and have eaten, And shall I make the rest of it into an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? I mean, this is how we feel about people that, like, worship idols, right? Like, how ridiculous is it that you use this thing for all this other stuff, and then you have some left over, and then you're just like, okay, well, I'll carve it into some image of something, and oh my goodness, it's a god. The thing we can miss, though, is that the trick with idolatry and the trick with worshiping idols is not what the idol is, but it's what the idol does for us that makes the worship of things other than God so appealing. And it's the reason why that even when we think, oh man, we're so enlightened that we would never do something like that, we have to be very careful because the very thing that appealed to them appeals to us today. There's a temptation that idols have in our life to give us the very things we feel we need to live each and every day. First thing that we see with, in Paul's words that idols do is that idols give identity. When there is a possibility that there are multiple different ways to God. That there are multiple different gods. That there are different ways to find and achieve the glory that we feel ourselves compelled to, the purpose that we feel ourselves desperately needing. When we have the opportunity to pick and choose what makes us us, we can all of a sudden Figure out how we will be identified, how we will be defined, how we will find glory, and how we will find purpose. And what's great about that is it can be different from the people around us. That it can give us an identity that is separate, that is distinct from the people sitting right next to us. That we can say, this is the thing that makes me, me. This is the thing that makes me great. This is the thing that gives my life purpose. We can't, it's beyond our capacity in our lives to choose to not go after these things. These things such as glory, purpose, identity, we are built 
for this. We need this. This is like saying, I'm just not going to drink water ever again. You might say that, but there's water in the coffee you're drinking. There's water in the pop you're drinking. You have to drink something, right? And so if your life is dependent on it, you're going to go about it one way or another. You, you can't choose not to. And so in that, we just want to be able then to choose how we get to that. How we get to that place. We know what we need, but one option doesn't seem like enough. Because if there's really truly only one option, then how am I me apart from you? Like, who am I really? Like, if we, if we all only have one option for the thing that we've been built to do and to be, then what's that mean about who I am? Do I just become like a faceless, nameless, like blob in a sea of like people? Do I lose my personality? What makes me special? What makes me unique? And so this is why things like our businesses, the positions that we have, the resumes that we accumulate, the pedigrees that we are born into and that we sustain and that we build for ourselves. This is why these things are so enticing to us. This is why they matter so much to us. Because why? Because they give us that identity that we long to have. It's what makes us different. It's kind of like, you know, when, when you're talking to someone about, you know, somebody, you know, say somebody in the church they don't really know. And, you know, the question really is, and it's asked a million ways, but the question we're always asking is, well, what are they known for? And the person says, well, I, they love Jesus. And it's like, well, that's great. We all do. What are they really known for, though, right? That there has to be this other thing that, that, that identifies us, that qualifies us, that, that makes us someone that is special, that makes us someone to be looked up to, that gives us an identity that is worth having and being shared and being talked about and being propelled into leadership and to be seen as someone that is to be looked up to, followed, admired, modeled after. Idols in our life help us be something we all desperately want to be. We all want to be unique. We see this just even in like consumer culture now. Where, where it used to be that everybody goes to the same store, they kind of look at all the stuff, you have certain selections, it's whatever the store has, and you pick up from there. And so it's kind of like mass consumption, where everything now is tailored to the individual. They talk about this all the time in, 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 in consumer circles, of, of just how the individual shopping experience, it's tailored to the individual, it's uniqueness, it's who you are, and you're not anyone else. And we love that feeling. We love the idea that when we get on, as, as frustrated as it is that we know that we're being tracked all the time, how great is it when you open up Amazon and they're like, hey, here's some things that we think that you might like, right? That's just for you. At least we like to think it's just for us. But it's just for us. And when we think that, and, and it gives us identity, and it, it gives us this thing that we're different from everyone else, and that speaks to our soul. Sure, it's crazy to worship a block of wood or 
paper that our government just prints as much as they want to, or that paper that you hang on your wall that, you know, someone says has a lot of value because you spent four years killing yourself and went into massive debt for it. Yeah, it's crazy that anyone would ever worship that. But if I have this one and you have that one, then I know who I am apart from you. And so I have my identity. I'm unique. And that is of the utmost value to me. The temptation of idols is very real because it gives us an identity apart from everyone else. That if it truly is just about God, and we're all in here and our identity is just in Jesus, well, man, I don't know if that's what I signed up for. And Paul goes on and he says it's not just the fact that you know, it's, it's an idea with identity. It goes even further than that. He says in verses 22 and 23, he says, well, so claiming to be wise, people that have given themselves to idols, they become fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. See, idols don't just give us an identity. They also give us reassurance. The God we serve in our life, that we devote ourselves to, that we follow, sets the standard for our life. It sets the standard for who we are and what we aspire to be, to achieve, to have in our life. And so it shouldn't be surprising that we are quite often enough tempted to build God's based on what we are already doing with our life. We all have things that matter to us, right? I mean, I could go through the list, and it would be like a really boring list, because you'd be like, yeah, I knew that already, but money, fame, power, success, security, all that kind of stuff, right? We have those lists of those things that we really like and that we really go after and things that are driving us all the time. And the thing is, instead of coming to the idea that maybe that thing isn't what I've made it out to be, what we like to do, what we're tempted to do, what idols give us the opportunity to do is to create a God in the image of the thing we're already chasing after. And then that God comes along and says, no, you guys are on the right track. What you're doing is great. Just keep going. And don't apologize for it. Because that's what it's all about. It reassures us that the thing we're already after and about and care about is the thing you should be after and about and care about. Um, I don't know in the history of like uh, comments that have age just not aged well if, if if one tops all of our math teachers telling us you you have to figure out how to do this in your head because you're not going to carry a calculator around with you all the time right it's like boy were they wrong <laughs> it, it, they, like they were so wrong it's not even the fact that we have calculate like we all have calculators now in, in our pockets right it, it's the fact that parents are having to figure out how to keep their kids from using Alexa to cheat on their homework at home now. Like, it's not even like, it's not even that you have, like, you don't have a calculator. They would have been like, well, you're not going to have me there with you all the time. It's like, guess what? I have the internet with me, and it's, like, way smarter than you are. We just got Alexa a couple weeks ago, and, like, one of my favorite pastimes now is telling my kids to tell Alexa to do something and then watching them get frustrated when Alexa doesn't know what they're saying. 
And so they sit there and they get really upset that Alexa's like not doing the thing that they're telling her to do. And I'm like, man, this is great because this is my life. Like just telling you guys to do something and you won't do it. And so now they're sitting there and they're just getting frustrated and they're waving their hands and they're just like putting their hands in their face. And it's, it's just like, man, this is so good. And so I just do that like over and over again when I need to pick me up. It's like, hey, tell Alexa to do something. And they get really frustrated. But imagine if it wasn't even, like, if the possibility, it wasn't even an issue of, like, whether or not you have, like, Alexa to, like, help you cheat on your homework. Imagine if there was a possibility for you to rewrite math altogether. If somebody just came along and they were like, no, 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 the way that you want to do it, how you understand it, no, that's the right way. So if you think 2 plus 2 equals 5, guess what? It does. How great is that? You don't have to change one bit whatsoever. And what's more is not only is your way the right way for you, but it's actually the way other people should be doing it as well. And so not only like should you keep going, but like you are what the world needs. The world needs more of you. That's what idols do in our life. Idols come along. And say, hey, don't worry about being like self-introspective, about questioning whether or not you want the right thing. It is the right thing. You're doing great. And what's more is more people need to be like you. And so for any of us that are ever racked by just a question of, do I want the right thing? Am I the kind of person I think I am? Maybe I'm not about what I think I'm about. Idols are so inviting because they come along and they reassure us that we are exactly who we think we are. They don't challenge us to change. They don't challenge us to grow. They just say, you're good where and how you are. It's for these two reasons. It's for these two things that idols give to us. That it's not just that they were appealing back then, they are appealing today. For anyone that has ever wanted an identity that is unique or reassurance that they are doing the right thing, idolatry is a very real, present temptation constantly. And just in case you're wondering, we all struggle with at least one of these. And so it doesn't do us any good to ever look at passages like this, what Scripture says about idolatry, how often it comes up, and to say, man, I am so glad I live in an age of enlightenment and I would never worship a block of wood that I used to bake my meal on. Because we do. And what's scary about it is, is, is it isn't this like all or nothing thing, at least on the surface. We, we, we think in, in our lives that it would be so easy for us to, like, notice when we've fallen into this. Like, obviously, like, we're going to be outside, like, bowing down to, like, a statue of something. But John Kilner points out that it isn't this way at all. He says idolatry doesn't just present itself, often doesn't not present itself as an either or. Most often an idol doesn't challenge God directly. Rather, it insinuates that it can thrive in one's life alongside devotion to God. Idols in our lives come along and they say, I can help. 
I can make sense of this. I can actually make it easier. Isn't everything easier with money? Yeah. And so you can have money and you can have God and you can have both. And why wouldn't it be better with both than just with the one? It doesn't have to be in competition. That you can trust your education and your pedigree and God at the same time, the same amount, and you're good for it. You're better for it. You're better that you have that thing and Jesus. You're better that you can look to and you can lean on your experience in your life and in your career as well as the God of the universe. You even have something to add to this now. You have a further qualification that qualifies you for better ministry, better leadership. You should be the person discipling everybody because why? Because the thing you're doing is the thing to do. And so it isn't this like apparent thing to us when we've fallen into this, when we started trusting in other things, because it's not always in direct competition. And, and, and when it gets even worse is when the idol actually becomes God himself. That when we actually take God, rather than the way that God shows himself to be in Scripture— and we say God's the way that we imagine him to be. He thinks the way we do. His justice is the same as ours. The way I would love is the way he loves. What, he wants what we want. He votes the way we do. That instead of holding these two things up and saying, I have this and I have God, we put them together and we say, this is who God is. Rather than taking who he has shown us to be, the, and we say he's more, he's more like us than he is like him. I mean, it sounds good. It's great when God's idea of justice is the way we would dish out justice, right? It's great when he shows grace to us in the way that we would show grace to ourselves and not to others necessarily. It feels good, it sounds good, but what Paul says is it's a mess. He wraps up the section in verses 24 and 25. He says, therefore, because of this, because of this idea, these idols in their life, and, 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 and even sometimes trying to hold God and the idol at the same time, or saying God is that way. It says, therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. They exchanged the truth for a lie. That truth is huge. What, 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 what's this exchange that's been made? Like I was asking myself this question all What is it? Like just in saying like, oh, it's a, we, a truth for light. Like what, what is it that is actually the thing that we have like in our hearts with, with, with idolatry that, that we give up? It's the truth of who we are. It's the truth of what we've been made for. It goes all the way back to Genesis and what God says. He says, let us make man in our own image. That we have been made in the image of God. And that because of that, we have been called to have a special connection with God so that we will reflect God to the rest of the world. 
We see an example of this idea, actually, in the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 3, we're told that King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, languages, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace." This was a common practice in the ancient Near East with kings that could not, especially ones that were over huge empires like Babylon, that could not be in every place at once. That they would set up statues that were meant to display something about who they were. They were meant to reflect something about themselves. And so what we're told with Nebuchadnezzar's statue here is that it's covered in gold and that it was, I think, what, 60 cubits, which is roughly somewhere around 90 feet tall. This thing was huge. So those two things right there tell you that what Nebuchadnezzar wanted the people of this province to know and understand about him when he could not be there was that he was wealthy and he was big. And so because this statue was set up with that in mind, the idea is why he's like so crazy about if you don't bow down to the statue, you get thrown in the fiery furnace. And we're like, well, it's a statue, man. What's the big deal? The statue was a reflection of the king and represented him. It was intimately connected to him so that it said something important about him to the people of that province. When we are told that we have been made in God's image, what that means is that we have been made to reflect something about who God is to the rest of the world. That we have been made to be intimately connected to God so that who he is comes flowing out of us, that people see him and they know him And they turn and they worship him as a result of that. It says this in Genesis. And in James chapter 3, he actually, James works out why this is so important and what this is supposed to look like and how you cannot do this. You cannot be what God has called you to be when there is something else in your life that you're looking to for your identity or your assurance. He says in James chapter 3, verse 9, he says, With the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. James says we don't have a choice. We are called to be made to be in God's image. We are made in God's image. We are called to be his image, to, to reflect him to the world around us. We don't have a choice of how to do that. All we get to choose is whether or not we will do it. You only get to choose if you take the toilet paper that's not the toilet paper that you normally get. You don't get, you don't get a choice of what kind. You either take it or you don't. The same way with God is we don't get to say, I am honoring and worshiping God while we are chasing after other idols in our life. Because only through an intimate connection with God and God alone 
will we know him to such a degree that we will reflect him and only him? If we are chasing after other things, we are sending mixed signals. We are sending signals that we can do it on our own. We are sending signals that there is something to who we are that makes us special, unique, worthy of salvation. We're sending signals that if we, do, if we follow certain principles, things are going to turn out the right way. All of these things point to us being able to do it ourselves, and that is a works-based righteousness that God says is not possible for us. And so either we are people that are made in God's image, intimately connected to him and him only so that we can reflect him to the world or we are not. And if we abandon the standard that we have been called to, the thing that we are called to aspire to, that is to be like God, to be in connection with him, we abandon it completely, James says. I mean, it it is hard to overstate this. That we get our significance from the unwavering intentions of God, but so often we trade that for current human capacities. We trade that for things whose value change on a daily basis. That education you take so much value in, in 20 years they'll look at that and say how outdated and Neanderthal-esque it was. That money that you cling so tightly to, how's that doing for you in an age of inflation? All of these things change. Their value changes. But you know the one thing that doesn't change? Who God is and what he has done and the work that he is doing. And so when we exchange the truth for a lie, we exchange so much. We exchange our identity and our assurance for things that cannot provide in the way that we need them to. Like I said a little bit ago, we all have that thing. We have a few, some of us have a few things. Things that we are tempted with, idols in our life, whatever it might be. The question that we need to ask ourselves is what has it ever given me? And let me just say this, like, as you start thinking about that for a second, like, you, you might be like, well, it's given me quite a bit. I mean, I, I, I used to think that way. It, it, it's, it's given me quite a bit. I, I, I can point to, I can point to the joy. I can point to the pleasure. I can, I can point to the security. But the truth is in understanding who we are, what we've been made to be, and the things that we need, that is an identity and assurance. Idols have nothing to give you that you don't already have. They have nothing to give you that you don't already have because they're not real. I mean, that's the easy answer, right? I feel like so much of the sermon is just like, here's the obvious thing, right? They have nothing to give you because everything that they have to give you, you're projecting onto them. 
right? Going back to Israel, there at the base of Mount Sinai. Here, this golden calf is the one that brought us out of Egypt, right? They're projecting that onto them, and so they have nothing to give them. But idols also have nothing to give us that we don't already have because we have that in Jesus. In Jesus, you have the identity that you need. What's more is you have the identity that you created for. In Jesus, you have the assurance that what you're going after is the right thing. Why? Because it's what you were created for. When you think about these things in your life, whether it's money or relationships, career, education, I mean, whatever it might be, the question is, has it ever sacrificed for you? Has it ever chased you down? Has it ever given anything to you solely because it saw value in who you were? No, all of these things that we so often chase after in our lives, we're killing ourselves for, and then we get to it and we say, oh my goodness, look at what my success has brought me. But what's the reality of the situation? You've done that, right? It has nothing to give you that you don't already have. It's the other way around. Idols in truth enslave us because they tell us that if we give more, they'll give something in return. And so there's more identity to be had. There's more assurance that we need. So stop looking to it. Stop pointing to it. Stop worshiping it. Stop orienting your life around it. Stop seeing your worth and other people's worth built in it. And know and understand the standard that you have been called to aspire to. And that is the one true God, Jesus Christ. Like we would be lost. At the, at the end of 1 John, John tells his readers, he, he says, stay clear of idols. Like just don't even go near them. He says. But if it wasn't for Jesus, we would be like, what are you talking about, man? That makes no sense. What's an idol? See, Jesus has shown us who God is. In, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. Why? Because there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we exist. Jesus shows us what God looks like. And he shows us how different God is from the idol's that we're so tempted to because of the identity and the reassurance that we desire. And what he shows us God looks like and how he's so different from these idols is that God chases you and me down. That God loves us enough that he has given everything for us when we did not deserve it. That see, he saw it good and fitting to give his only son that whosoever should believe in him would not die but would have eternal life. There is not one thing in this world created under the heavens or the earth that can claim to give you what God gives you. 
Because in Jesus Christ, you already have everything you need. And no idol anywhere will ever be able to match that. What has it ever given you? When I think about the things I've chased after in my life, I can look back now and I can say, I had to give up so much for that one minute of pleasure and security and what I felt like was life and yet how fleeting it was. And when I compare that to the eternal truth of God and his love and how it is never ending, that is why Paul says that we have exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator this is so big, who is blessed forever. Amen. Stop chasing after things in your life that are fleeting, that are temporary, that are just for a moment. Stop exchanging. It's a bad exchange rate, the temporary for the eternal. As we go in the prayer, I just want to take this time that we would allow God's Spirit to search us out and, and to show us what the idols in our life may be where they may be, where, where maybe we're hold, trying to hold them and God at the same time, or better yet, we've put them on God and said, God is this way. We, we need to come back to, time and time again, a place in our life where we say, it is God and the God of the Scripture, the God for who He is and how He is, not for the way I would imagine Him, not for who I am and how I would be. That's the God I worship. That's the God I serve. And all others are idols, and they have nothing to offer me and give me that I don't already have. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the beauty of the truth of who you are. That you are the God who is revealed, that we can see in Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you for the grace that you have, that you are not a God made in my image or any of our other, any of our images. But that, Lord, we are called to go so far beyond ourselves, to, to, to give ourselves completely to who you are. Because you're the one who is good. You are the one who is righteous. You are the one who true love is encapsulated by. You're the one that holds holiness and glory and all of it together. And Father, with that in mind, it breaks my heart for the times that I know in my own life I have settled for something less. I have given myself to a lie of what would bring me true worth, true happiness. That I have looked for cheap reassurance rather than your word of who I am and what I'm called to. Father, we open ourselves up to you. We ask that you would search us out, that you would show us where in our life idols may be. 
That we would not think ourselves above it, but that we would understand that we are tempted to it, we are pulled to it in the same way. It just seems to be a more of an eternal rather than an external expression in our lives. Would you give us the strength and the faith to be honest with ourselves and with you about where we are and what we're about and what we cling to and what we hold on to and what we look to And Lord, if any of it comes back and it's not you, would you take it away? And would you in your love, in your mercy, overwhelm us this morning? Knowing that we can be so lost, we can be so distant, that we can misrepresent you so badly and yet you still forgive us, you bring us back, you call us back, you set us right. Would this be a time, Father, through your Holy Spirit, just a time of refreshment and an overwhelming joy that we can know you, love you, honor you, worship you, and you and you alone is all we need. Would that be a welcome sound to our souls rather than something that we shy away from because we're afraid of what we might lose? Would you show us the truth of our life, the truth of the scope of eternity, Would we find ourselves praising your name and pointing to your works, your sacrifice, and your resurrection and nothing else. It's in your name we pray. Amen.